Now we come back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This was a series that began last September as we opened up this first century letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, And it's a letter that makes the essential claim to us, and we've been hearing this for the past couple of months now, that the church is what God is doing in the world. That's been the big picture. We want to keep that in front of mind. The church is what God is doing in the world. And as such, if that's true, and it is, we should love. We should lean in and we should give our lives to the church and enjoy doing it all the while. So the first half of the letter that we read, chapters one through three, could be summarized by saying to the Ephesians then and to us now, you have become a new creation in Christ who lives in a new community called the church. That's chapters one through three of Ephesians. The second half of the letter, which we pick back up with today, says essentially, you are new, so be new. You are new, so be new. And here's what it looks like to live out your new life in Christ in a whole number of different ways. And that's what we've been seeing the past couple of weeks as we've looked at uh, particularly verses uh, 17 of chapter 4 through what, our, what is going to be our textual parameter today, verse 21 of chapter 5. And so with that, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, as we come to another round of encouragements from Paul to us, which guide and which govern and which fuel uh, the living out of our new lives in Christ. And we'll read from verses uh, 15 through 21 together this morning. And if you're new to the Bible or if you don't have a Bible today, uh, that's okay. This really is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. And we even have extra Bibles for you. If we don't have one, you can look at the center chair by the aisleway in the middle or um, on the table in the back foyer. Or you can even open up your phone's browser, get on your Bible app of choice and search Ephesians 5 verse 15 in the ESV. That is the English Standard Translation or Translation Version. The acronym needs to make sense. English Standard Version. Uh, That's what we'll be reading from today. Cue that up for you. Open it up in your Bible and I will do the rest. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias a Efesios, capítulo 5, versículos 15 a 21. And now, without further ado, let's read God's word. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes to the church. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise but is wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are God's words. We need God's help. Would you join me in a brief prayer? Lord, we thank you that you have brought us, your people, from death to life. And that, Lord, as you've led us into this newness of life in Christ, you have, uh, Lord, uh, not left us without a word from you. You have not left us unequipped. You've not left us uninformed so that we would be 
unaware of what your will for us is, but you've made it clear and you've given us a book. And we pray that, Lord, today as we read this book, you would fill us with your spirit that we might see your son and that we might see just how good it is uh, to live the way that you would have us to live. That it is not burdensome, but it's a blessing. That it's not drudgery, but it is a joy. Would you help us and empower us to turn away from foolish living, to turn away from the old manner of life and to put on and to turn to what is new, what Christ has died to bring us into individually and together as a church. So fill us with your spirit and glorify your son. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So as I was reading this passage this week and and thinking on what the Lord would have us to consider, it came to me that there's, there's a question that this text, that it, that it begs us to ask of ourselves. And here's the question. The question is, are you a person of integrity? Are you a person of integrity? Integrity meaning, you know, the extent to which you live your life with a sort of wholeness, with a sort of consistency, a lack of division or alteration from one place or context to the next. Put it another way, the extent to which you are the same person all the time. Integrity. You are the same person all the time. Even as you find yourself in different places, in different situations, and even around different people. And we know, we've experienced, I'm going to make the claim to you that to have this sort of wholeness is a much better way to live than by putting on different masks, than by compartmentalizing and setting aside important parts of of who you are. Much better than overthinking how you present yourself to others and how are you perceived by others. Much better than experiencing the proneness to fall into hypocrisy that comes when we are living with weak integrity. And now, to point the question further for us today, if you are a Christian, how would you rate? How would you consider? How would you take stock of the integrity of your new life in Christ? Are you putting on like a garment, like those new clothes like we've heard about in Ephesians 4 and 5? Are you putting on your new identity in Christ? And are you living it out in such a way that no matter where you're going or what you're doing or who you're with, you're getting dressed the same? How would you rate the integrity of your new life in Christ? Are there certain contexts, certain situations, or even relationships that are going on in your life, in which you're maybe less likely to put on the new clothes of your new identity in Christ and might be prone, more prone, especially prone to be tempted to put on the old garments, right? The old actions and attitudes of sin back on, to tolerate the old ways in which you used to live and either uh, not pursue or even maybe certain contexts, certain situations in your life where you wouldn't even consider (laughs) that you could, in those moments, live for God's glory? Is that a, uh, just something that's not a category in certain portions of your life, certain aspects of your life, that in that moment, in that relationship, in that situation, you can live as a Christian for God's glory? Is that something that's not always breaking in, in certain aspects of how you're living? And listen, (laughs) if we're honest, and I know if if I'm honest, all of us have a, a gap, okay? between what we believe to be true and who we believe ourselves to be and how we actually live, how we actually behave. We have a gap. 
And listen, God gives us the passage that's before us today to help us close the gap by his grace. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul continues with his list of do's and don'ts that we've been hearing for the past couple of weeks so that we would live out our new lives in Christ with increasing integrity. Giving us these commands, and they are commands. He says, do this, don't do that. These are commands to us. He gives us these commands and more commands that we've just read and we'll we'll, we'll dive into today. Not to burden us, okay? Not to, to bind us, to restrict us, to inhibit our joy or crush us with responsibility, but to bless us as we receive the joy of glorifying God at every chance we get. That's what he's after in this passage. That's what I'm after for us today. And so this morning, God gives you and I the charge to wear your new clothes everywhere. Wear your new clothes everywhere. That's the point of the sermon today. The main point, if you're taking notes, write that one down. Wear the new clothes. That is your new life, your new identity in Christ. And put that on. Get dressed in that way everywhere you go. Wear your new clothes everywhere. Put on your new life in Christ at all times, in all places, and around all people. And don't miss this, both those within and those who are outside of the church. And we'll take up this charge as we consider uh, two points that go underneath that in the rest of our time together today. And the first is this. Paul says to us, wear your new clothes at all times, in all places, and around all people. This is verse 15 through 18. And the second one's kind of a mouthful, but we're going to roll with it. It's, It's this. Wear your new clothes to make our time together as the church, as God's gathered people, the greatest place to be. Verses 18b through 21. And we'll come to that later. And I'll mention it as we get there. But first, point number one. Let's begin here. Paul says to us, wear your new clothes at all times, in all places, and around all people. And as we come to this first point, this first exhortation, this first encouragement, command even to us, what is behind this point and behind uh, the instruction in this passage of Ephesians is really this most basic reality to us as Christians. Why should we wear our new clothes everywhere? Why must we strive to live out the new life in Christ at all times, in all places, around all people? Because you're always a Christian. (laughs) You are always a Christian, okay? No matter what you're doing, where you are, or who you're with, you're always a Christian. This is your most fundamental identity. As Paul told us earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, he said this of us. He said that you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2. Or as Paul writes in this book's uh, sister letter, the book of Colossians, He says this, he says, if then, to the church, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, excuse me, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. 
For, he says, listen to this. This is what's true of you if you're a Christian. For, you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is so bound up with Christ and God that it can't be removed from that. It can't be abstracted from that. It is bound up totally in Christ with God. Or as Paul says quite famously in Galatians 2.20, and this is a verse that he gives to us, which is true of everyone who has trusted in Christ and has become united to him by faith. He says this, and we can say it too if we're in Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what's most true about you, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says to us, is that you are a Christian. You are in Christ. You belong to Christ and have been bought by Christ at the cost of his own life. This is your most fundamental identity. And it is who you are, okay? As such, if this is true, if this is who you are, (laughs) uh, this is who you are then, um, no matter where you're going, (laughs) what you're doing, or who you're with. You never come out of Christ. You never shake this identity. This never becomes any less true of you. But, this being the case, as Paul's commands to us in the verses that are following from this, the verses before us will indicate, even as believers, We are, we're prone, aren't we, to live with inconsistent integrity. We are prone to live like that's not always as true of who we are. We are prone to to fail to do God's will and to waste our time with fruitless endeavors. We're prone to even overdo it and, and miss the opportunities that we have to glorify God as we receive his good gifts. Things that we've heard about in the past couple of weeks, weighty things. Things like sex in the context of marriage, the precious gift of the time that he's given us that we'll talk about in just a moment, and even food and drink in the form of alcohol or or, or wine, which the Bible says was given to gladden the hearts of men in Psalm 104, 15. We're prone to miss it in these areas. We're prone to be inconsistent. We're prone to waste our time. We're prone to misuse or abuse and cheapen God's good gifts. And so Paul gives us the verses that are before us today to help us be people, Christians of greater and greater integrity. So look with me at verse 15 as we start off in the passage this morning. Verse 15 begins, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And this initial command is really another way of Paul uh, stating the opening line of the the second half of this book. If you recall back from chapter 4, verse 1, where he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says to us that we must take care, that we must be diligent, that we, we must be intentional as to how we walk, which is like a Paulinism for live. When Paul says walk, he means the way in which you are living. He says, don't do so as unwise. And unwise would mean, kind of filling in the gaps from the past couple of weeks, unwise would be falling back into those old patterns and actions and attitudes that Paul has warned us against in 4.17 through 5.14. He says, don't just fall back into those things because of unwise walking, unwise living. But instead, he says, walk as those who are wise. Walking in wisdom 
is walking in the light of God's truth, seeing things the way God sees them and responding and treating them as such, being governed by God's love and not uh, carrying on in any actions or attitudes that are incompatible with the kind of love he's shown us in Christ. Wisdom in our living, as we're living the, the new life in the peace and the unity of the new people created by the gospel, that is the church, that would be to walk with wisdom. The unwise person will, will not cast off the old clothes of sin far away enough. <laughs> he or she will keep them a little too close at hand. The unwise person will allow bitterness and comparison to, to fester in their hearts and will, will hold back or maybe avoid bringing certain parts of their life into the light of, of God's truth to be exposed as, as what it is. The unwise person might try to live the new life while hanging on in some ways or respects to other incompatible parts of the old life and try to do both at the same time. Whereas the wise person is he or she who both knows and does the will of God. Embracing his commandments, keeping his law, putting off the old ways and putting on the new because they believe God to be good and they believe his way to be better. And so Paul says, walk not as those who are unwise, but those who are wise, who take care, who are diligent to embrace these commands for their good, for God's glory, and to walk in all the fullness of the new life that Christ has died to bring us into together. Be wise, Paul says. Know and do God's will. He says, trust me, it's good for you. Trust me, it's better. And so, taking our, our points order, okay, that we began with, of, of times, places, and people in reverse. <laughs> it sounded better the way I said it in the point, but we're going to reverse it and get it all confused. But taking that in reverse, we see that God has given us the spirit of wisdom, chapter 1, verse 17, who fills us with the very resurrection power of Christ to help us walk wisely. First idea, around all people. Around all people, this idea underlies what we read in verses 15 through 17. And so looking back at verse 15 and kind of jumping around through verses 15 through 17, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That is Paul saying to us, be aware that you live out your new life in the old world. You live out your new life in the old world surrounded by other people who have yet to be made new. Don't forget that. He says that God has saved us, okay? But then he has left us in this fallen and yet unredeemed world so that we would seize every opportunity that presents itself to bear witness to the Savior of the world and to offer his light to those who are in darkness. That's what he's getting at here. The parallel passage of Colossians 4, 5 makes this point even clearer for us as Paul says this. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that is, non-Christians. And then using the same phrase, making the best use of the time. So looking at these two letters side by side, looking at what Paul's getting at here, he's saying, hey, listen, you're a new people and an old world. Take care then how you walk around, how you live amongst those who are not Christians. Take care, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time you have together with them is the first idea here. 
And so here's the upshot for us, okay? And it, there's two upshots, but they're pretty simple, both of them, okay? As Christians, it's not enough to act like Christians at church. <laughs> we can't only be Christians here. We have to be Christians outside of the church as well. You need to be who you are when we gather together at the Ebel Club, also when you're at work, <laughs> when you're talking to your next door neighbor, when you're enjoying times of leisure in downtown Santa Ana, when you're out to dinner, when you're at the beach, and whenever, especially, you are around non-Christians. Jesus, church, has commissioned us as his ambassadors to the world. And he intends for his church, his people, to be the light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that all can see. And so what this means for us is that we're always representing Christ. If you're a Christian and you belong to Christ, you're always representing Christ to all those around you. You're always representing Christ, and we should take care then to always act, to always behave, to always conduct ourselves for the sake of our Savior's name when we're around those who haven't yet received him. And really simply put, that means that we shouldn't compromise our witness. We shouldn't act in such a way by what we do or don't do that would make either other people uh, have a hard time hearing the gospel from us or, even worse, not wanting the Jesus that we're telling them about. We represent him to an old, dying, and dark world, okay? And so we need to take care with how we conduct ourselves around those who are not yet among us that we really wish, we really hope, we pray the Lord would make to be among us. Okay? The world is watching. (laughs) Would they see Christ in us? Cross of Grace Church. That's the first idea. And with that being said, the second upshot that Paul has in view here is not just that we would be on guard then, and kind of watching our own back with with how we walk. We should be circumspect in that way, but that we would also be eagerly seeking out every opportunity that we'd have to point our neighbors to Christ. So there's both kind of a negative and positive here. He says, hey, watch yourself because you represent Jesus wherever you go. So don't do certain things that are incompatible with who he is, right? But secondly, don't just avoid doing the bad stuff, but seize, be eager for, be desirous of every opportunity you have in a dark and dying world to point someone to Christ, okay? We should be praying, praying often, praying regularly that God would give us openings to talk about Jesus and to make the best use of our time that we have in conversation with our unbelieving friends. Not, and that means this, not writing off anyone, ever. (laughs) Not writing off anyone or assuming that any circumstances that we're in, the errand that we're on, the lunch break that we're trying to take privately by ourselves, whatever it is, fill in the gap. Don't write off anybody or write off any situation and say, oh, the Lord wouldn't work here. (laughs) He wouldn't provide me with a spiritual conversation with someone who needs to know Jesus right now. No, no, no. I'm just going to do my thing. This is my time. There's There's no opening for that. Paul wants us to make the best use of our time by praying for those opportunities and not considering any set of our circumstances, any bit of our times, however mundane they might seem, however routine or ordinary, to be off the table for God to work extraordinarily. Does that make sense? That's what Paul wants us to be longing for. Our good shepherd, church, has left us here amidst these evil days for the express purpose of gathering more and more sheep to himself. So would we be eager to step into any opportunities that he gives us to spread his joy to others as we spend the time that he's given to us? That's the first idea here. And that brings us then with the mention of time to the second part of our statement. 
which I said, wear your new clothes at all times. And this refers to, in particular here, of our time together with non-Christians, but we can also apply that idea of how we spend our time generally uh, to all the time we have. The Bible says that all our days are written in God's book. All our days are written in God's book, that he's numbered each of them, and he intends for all of them to be walking um, in Ephesians 2.10, the good works that he's prepared for us beforehand. God has plans for our time. He has good works prepared beforehand, and he wants us to be using all the time we have to do the good that he's given for us to do. And so in a general, but yet quite comprehensive sense, (laughs) we use our time that we have wisely when we spend it knowing and doing the will of the Lord in every aspect of our lives. And so verses 16 through 17, with the language of making the best use of the time, um, underlying that phrase is kind of this concept um, of buying back, okay, or, or redeeming, reclaiming. Paul says, make the best use of your time. You might probably heard it before. Some Bible translations say, redeem the time. So not passively, but actively, intentionally, reclaim, redeem, buy up, seize upon the time that God has given these particular opportunities that you have to do good, to do what his will is, to obey him, and to do the things that he's put for you to be doing. He wants us to be actively then investing our time and seizing every opportunity we have to obey his will and to bring glory to his name. And as I was thinking about it this week, you know, it kind of dawned on me, and it might as well with you. But think about this, okay? If the danger of wasting time was a concern for Christians then, back in the first century, who, oh man, didn't have a whole lot of the time-wasting potential that we have now. They, they, they had a lot of work to do, but they didn't have the internet, among other things, right? Uh, if that was a concern for them then, how much more for us now is this a word we need to hear. We live in a world where time, that is one of the most precious resources and gifts of God that we have been given. We live in a world where time is often wasted. It's a world of wasted time. And as we look around, we go, everybody's doing it. This is what it means to be human in the 21st century is to take our time and call it cheap and squander it and use it and abuse it and not do too much that's fruitful with it. Even Christians, even we, are are prone to waste and to squander this precious treasure and to make a light thing out of what is quite weighty indeed. And I know I'm guilty of this in in so many ways. I know I'm guilty of it when I look at my phone every Sunday morning on the way to church and it tells me my screen time for the week. You guys get that notification? (laughs) You invest and you (laughs) you use and you pour into your phone, then it turns around and tells you how much time you've wasted on it every single week. But ask yourself, what, what is the way you spend your time, okay, say about what you love, what you value, what you live for? How are you prone, ask yourself, and as we go into this new year with your resolutions and your thinking and your uh, uh, ability to take advantage of this new and fresh time, okay, how are you prone to waste the precious time you've been given by God? And again, I'd submit that one of the biggest time wasters we're all prone to is scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on our phones. Spending hours every day looking at the screen, looking for the quick hit of, of dopamine and, and happiness uh, or diversion, um, looking at it when we're, we're bored, 
Um, because it's become second nature and almost compulsive to us just to be glued to a screen in front of us and not even thinking much about it. And every week we get our stats and every week we see hours daily, hours weekly, time we invest that is probably going beyond the bounds of whatever you're doing professionally or work or, you know, important communication with your spouse or your friend that you can't, you know, miss there. There's probably a few hours at least <laughs> that we're investing that uh, aren't really going anywhere. Seeds we're sowing that never bear any fruit. There's no harvest that comes from a lot of that time spent. So consider, how much time are you spending on something like this? Anything that, 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 that's fruitless. How much time are you spending seeking um, the glory of God in the face of Christ? <laughs> By contrast, how often do you intentionally listen to and care for those who are around you without the distraction of devices? What are you putting into things that are much more capable of honoring God and bearing fruit? Think about this, church. What, what other ways, phones, screens, and anything else, are you cheapening and squandering the gift of time that God has given you? Not taking care to walk wisely in these evil days, but finding yourself in the way that you use your time, falling into wasteful or, or selfish, unfruitful, and God-dishonoring expenditures of time. Ask yourself. Paul, in this passage, he reminds us that time is a precious gift from God intended to be used for the glory of God. And maybe to help us <laughs> express our hearts to the Lord and, and to channel maybe some repentance, some confession for how we use and even abuse our time. Listen to this confession, this prayer that I read earlier this week from Anglican author Samuel Johnson from the 18th century. He says this, and this can give, give some voice to our own struggle to receive God's good gift of time. Johnson says this, he says, O Lord, in whose hands are life and death, by whose power I am sustained, and by whose mercy I am spared, he says, look down upon me with pity. Forgive me that I have until now, at the moment that he's writing this prayer, forgive me that I have until now so much neglected the duty which you have assigned to me and suffered the days and hours of which I must give account to pass away without any endeavor to accomplish your will. Make me to remember, O oh God, that every day is your gift and ought to be used according to your command. Grant me, therefore, so to repent of my negligence that I may obtain mercy from you and pass the time which you shall yet allow me in diligent performance of your commands. Through Christ Jesus, amen. Make me to remember, O oh God, that every day is your gift and ought to be used according to your command. <laughs> and in the spirit of, of Johnson, would we respond to the Apostle Paul with the kind of uh, resolve of another 18th century writer named Jonathan Edwards, who wrote not just one or two or even three resolutions, but 70 resolutions, if you're familiar with his work here. 70 resolutions that he didn't just jot down at the beginning of the year and forget like a week later, <laughs> but revisited and reread once a week, as often as he could, as long as he could. Listen to his resolutions concerning how he strove to spend his time. He says things like this, resolution one. He says, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Nor be it, nor suffer it, if I can possibly avoid it. 
Resolution number two, he says, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. And that's in the spirit of what Paul is saying here to us in Ephesians. Never to lose any bit of time, but to take it, to improve it, and to use it for God's glory and our joy and our neighbor's good. Would we strive to be diligent, to be like Edwards, to be like Johnson, to be as Paul is commanding us to be, even to be like Jesus. You think of Jesus. He's a man who wasted no time. As he and the disciples are wandering uh, through the desert and they come to um, go pass through Sychar in John chapter 4, on the, um, on the way, uh, they stop to go get some food, right? The disciples all go and they disperse and Jesus has some time on his hands. And if you recall the story, what does he do? He sees the woman who's at the well in midday. And instead of going, well, they'll be back in like 30 minutes. <laughs> They're just getting lunch for us and getting some supplies and stocking up. What does he do with the time that he has? He goes to that woman. He seizes the opportunity. He shares the truth of who he is and what he's come to do with her. And she believes. And then she tells her village. And they all come to believe through her witness and testimony. And God is glorified greatly. And the apostles come back and go, hey, Jesus, what are you doing talking to this woman? You know, we got the lunch. Let's go. And he goes, guys, you're, you're missing it. You're missing the point of what I'm doing here. If you recall that story, Jesus, we looked at his example, okay? He was someone who wasted no time, but seized every opportunity to glorify God. But not only this, not only his example for us, but also the work that he's done, okay, for us. Consider this as we're thinking about how we spend our time. Would each of us be freshly reminded that the one who has redeemed us, that Jesus, that Savior, he's redeemed all of us, okay? And here's what I mean by this. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. And in the context here, he says, in your body. But we could just as easily add to this. So therefore glorify God in your soul. Glorify God in your affections. Glorify God even in how you spend your time. All your days, church, are written in his book, and each of them is intended to bring glory to his name and good to your soul um, and good to those who are around you. Jesus redeemed us from sin and death. Jesus redeemed us from the unfruitful way of living that we were once bound and enslaved to. He's redeemed us so that we might have joy with him now and forever. If he has so redeemed you, should we not respond by redeeming the time that we have? to use it for his sake. We who live in Christ, we no longer live for ourselves and use our time however we might selfishly choose, but would we willingly spend it for his sake? And here, this usage of time, it includes, and we'll use this to launch off on the last part of our phrase here, okay? This usage of time, I'm going to argue, includes all times, (laughs) all kinds of places, all kinds of events, and even our times of, of celebration, of festivity, or leisure. And as I said, this is our launching off point for Paul's uh, final command in this first point in verse 18, where he says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So let me, let me make my connection here, okay? Um, he says all peoples, believers and unbelievers, all kinds of uh, times that we have, spiritual, at church, on an errand, mundane, whatever you think it is, and even in all kinds of contexts. And what I'm seizing upon here is this idea of drinking wine and thinking about how we would steward and how we would receive 
God's good gifts in times of celebration, in times of festivity, in, in parties, and in, in how we spend our time in leisure. Paul says that we ought to be careful. We ought to be on guard. We are warned against getting drunk with wine and then missing it in those times of celebration or festivity or leisure and abusing and misusing one of God's good gifts. And so in keeping with the weighty gifts of God that we've been talking about in the past couple of weeks, things like sex in the context of marriage, the precious time we've received, Christians should take care that they receive wine, which really here is it's a stand-in for alcohol, beer, spirits, <laughs> uh, as the weighty gifts that they are, okay? The kinds of, of things that you might be able to receive um, and not necessarily to lend a little specificity to this, become immediately intoxicated, okay? So this wouldn't just say, well, you can use any kind of substance that you'd like as you know, long as you don't go too far. There are certain kinds of things that necessarily and by design to use illegal drugs, even some that are legal now, <laughs> uh, take you to a place of drunkenness, of impairment and intoxication. And Paul would say flatly, no. The Bible condemns drunkenness at every turn, front to back, cover to cover. But there is a way in which we can receive the good gift of something like wine in such a way that it doesn't lead to intoxication, it doesn't lead to impairment, and if our conscience permits, can be received to the glory of God and to the good and gladdening of our hearts. And so we consider this, though, this prohibition because in the old manner of life that uh, we might have used to be living, um, the, the proneness to abuse things, like we read in last uh, section two, to abuse things like sex, to squander our time, to excessively use and abuse alcohol. These are prevalent features of the old life, okay? Uh, this is what you see in the world. This is what you might be struggling with now as you try to grapple with and steward well these, these weighty gifts. And Christians are, are told to be especially on guard for those um, particular stumbling blocks, <laughs> for those particular things that are hard to steward and might be things that they could trip over there. And so Paul says to us, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. He says, do not become intoxicated such that you're so impaired that you cannot, in, in a given moment, right, give glory to God, <laughs> okay? If you're ever so impaired that you cannot obey God's will <laughs> and love your neighbor and follow through on his commands, and you are defaulting on your responsibilities and are not able to be faithful, Paul would say, no, <laughs> you should not be in situations where you cannot, with your faculties and your functions, be able to obey God, to follow his will, and to give a clear conscience, no strings attached, yes and amen, thank you, Lord, for the good gift that you've given to me. If your conscience permits and you are able to drink and consume alcohol, Paul says, never do so in such a way that you can't use that moment to bring glory to God. That's what he's getting at here. He says, don't become drunk with wine, for, he says, that is debauchery. Debauchery means, and is referred to here, um, as this idea of uncontrolled living. Um, uncontrolled living, and also this idea of wastefulness. And that's kind of on theme with what we've been seeing here. There's a kind of way we can live which is fruitful or unfruitful, wise or unwise, a kind of way we can receive God's good gifts to his glory and the good of our souls, and the good of the church, and the kind of way we can receive these gifts, and we can really miss it. <laughs> and we can take a, a weighty thing and abuse it, and treat it as light, and cheapen it in such a way that it is wasteful. And that's what kind of debauchery that ensues. Uncontrolled living, 
with decisions that are made and bad fruit that is born that doesn't bring glory to God, but typically brings shipwreck to souls, does a lot of damage and destruction to those who are readily and regularly under the influence of much wine and alcohol. Paul says, turn away from this. It's dangerous. Turn away from this. Don't make shipwreck of your soul. Don't make disastrous consequences around you by failing to receive this as God intended for you to receive it. And now, this doesn't mean that we then can't drink wine or we shouldn't drink wine. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God. Likely here he's referring to that word that God spoke when he created the earth and everything in it at the beginning. And he said what? It's good. (laughs) I made this. It's good. And Paul says, and receiving it with prayer as we express our gratitude to God for his good gift. So Paul says, and the upshot of this passage is that Christians can never drink alcohol. That's not it. Paul's not saying don't do this. He's saying if you do do this, make sure you're receiving it with thanksgiving and with prayer as your conscience might permit. And if your use of alcohol would afflict your conscience, if it would cause you to stumble, or if it would open you up to other sinful and destructive behaviors, such as serving as maybe a a gateway to other um, more dangerous, more um, out-of-control kinds of substances, then the Lord would say clearly, stay away. Don't open that door. No need to drink any wine ever. Respect your conscience. (laughs) Feel no need to drink alcohol to make uh, a show of Christian maturity and, and glorify God by using his many other good gifts, without regret, without hesitation, and with no strings attached joy. Paul says here, don't be drunk with alcohol. And listen, even if you don't drink any alcohol at all, what each of us must do, and what each of us must make a regular pattern of doing, is drinking deeply of the Spirit. Drinking deeply of the Spirit. More than anything else, regardless of if we enjoy or abstain from something like alcohol in moderate uses, each of us should constantly be filled with the Spirit, drinking down as much of him as we can get. Because to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that brings about what is good for us and good for each other. So we would pray, we would respond to Paul's next uh, section, our next point, verse 19, by asking that the power and the influence and the purity of the Holy Spirit would be the thing that fills us like the wind in our sails. And it's the kind of wind in our sails that doesn't lead to to shipwreck or to capsizing or bring us into deadly waters. Instead, to be filled by the Spirit and to be led on by the Spirit and doing the things that come as you are filled up and influenced by the Spirit, this brings us to a place where far from being torn down, crashing upon the rocks or destroyed, we become built up together as a church. So, brings us to our second point. Paul says, wear your new clothes to make our time together as God's gathered people the greatest place to be. Look with me, beginning verse 18 again. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, in contrast, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Because it produces a whole lot of good fruit in God's people. He says, because as we're being filled with the Spirit, we are addressing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says here, the new life in Christ 
that we're called to live is a spirit-filled life. And the fruit that the spirit produces in us, it makes the church a really joyful place to be, doesn't it? (laughs) For those inside. A place full of singing, a place full of thanksgiving, a place full of serving one another and being served. That's a good place to be. I want to be in that kind of place. It, it, It makes us a joyful people. It makes it joyful to be inside the church. And if we're doing this and the spirit is filling us and our lives look like this, guess what else? It makes the church a compelling place to be for those who are yet outside. If they look on in us and see us not giving way to drunkenness, not walking in the dark, but singing and celebrating and giving thanks no matter what's going on in our lives and serving one another as Christ himself has served us. Be filled with the spirit that we would be a kind of people who get to live in this joy and reflect this joy to a watching world. And so what does it look like to be filled by the Spirit? What kind of fruit is born when we're under his influence? Three things. We'll aim to be quick about them. The first is singing. If you're filled with the Spirit and we're filled with the Spirit, there should be singing. Commentator Francis Folks says this. He says, singing has always had a place, a great place, in the church's life and worship. And every new movement of the Spirit has brought a fresh outburst of song. He says there should be singing, and singing has been something that's been with the church in all times and since the beginning. And we can't miss this here as we look at our passage. Paul says there should be singing, and the singing, though, is both addressing, verse 19, one another. It's both to each other and making melody to the Lord. Did you guys see that? It's not just you should sing to God. He also says you should sing to who? each other. There should be singing to one another. There should be singing to the Lord because every time we sing together, we're simultaneously praising God and we're proclaiming what is good and beautiful and true to each other. Our songs, they exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and they encourage us. Like Paul says in Colossians 3.16, he says that singing causes the word of Christ, that is the gospel, to dwell in us more richly. And what we sing with our mouths, it shapes our souls. That's why we take great care to pick the songs that we pick to sing on Sunday mornings. And that's why we're happy to sing songs that are full of the gospel, that are full of the glories and goodness of Christ, that are full of uh, truth about how we used to be apart from him, about how good it is now that we do belong to him together. What we sing shapes our souls. Our songs, they teach us. Our songs are confessions of faith and belief. And really, to be human is to sing, okay? (laughs) There are some things that they're so good, they're so worthy, they're so enjoyable that like you couldn't express how good it is if you didn't sing about it. You know what I mean? They just naturally overflow and express themselves in song. Uh, I love to sing. I love music. I used to be in a band because I love to sing. And a band that sounds much different from the band you hear (laughs) on Sunday mornings. They're they're much better than we were too. But because (laughs) there are just some things you need to sing about. And to respond to as weighty and as glorious and as wonderful as they are in song. Because mere words just won't cut it. To do justice to these things, you must sing about them. And to do justice to who God is and all he's done for us, it invites, it provokes a song from us. And so would we sing, church, with an awareness of what God is doing to magnify himself and build us up through our singing? You know, like when you're at a concert. Uh, if, you, if you like going to concerts and you look over at your friend who's there with you 
and he's singing the words of the band at the top of his lungs, and you point at the band, and you go, yes, look at this. Can you believe this? You ever had that experience? And you're there together, and you're enjoying this reality, okay? How much more with Christ, who rightfully can and does and should take center stage in our hearts, in our lives, in our worship. When we sing together, it's like we're at that concert, and we're pointing, and we're saying of him, how great you are. When we sing, we turn to each other, right? We grab each other on the shoulders. We look at one another. We shouldn't just have our eyes closed and be down here. We should sing together with each other, right? And we're saying, look at Jesus. Look at how wonderful he is. Look at all he's brought us into together and sing and sing and sing to the encouragement of our souls and to the glory of our God and Savior. So church, sing. Sing loudly. Sing joyfully. Sing to one another. It's good for the church. (laughs) And it's a great glimpse of our joy for our neighbors. Next thing, we should be filled with the Spirit, and that ought to bear in us the fruit of giving thanks. Giving thanks in our singing, in our praying, and in our conversations uh, together. And as Paul's already referenced for us back in verse 4 of chapter 5, he makes the contrast there and says, instead of of speaking empty and cheap and silly words of, of vulgarity, of course joking, of grumbling and complaining, when we come together as the church, our conversations should be filled with gratitude for God's blessings uh, uh, toward us, for God's blessings of one another. They should be filled with gratitude. And now, this doesn't mean that we can't be honest or that we have to pretend that like, everything's always fine <laughs> and there's nothing, anything hard in our lives. Not at all. God is not calling us to hold back from disclosing the true state of our hearts, but he's calling us to use our words wisely because they are weighty. And because of this, being honest with one another doesn't just mean an unchecked sort of venting or complaining. And even more than that, given how good God is and how incredibly he's blessed us, okay? Even in the midst of lives in a broken world in which we have not yet arrived and are still very much in progress, the decisive flavor and the emphatic tone of our speech should always be tinged with thanksgiving, no matter what isn't or is going on around us. That's why Paul says here in our verse, he says, giving thanks always and for everything. Like he says in 1 Thessalonians, giving thanks in all circumstances, giving thanks in all things. Because at the end of the day, God's people always have something to be thankful for. So we shouldn't speak in such a way as to call light or cheap or a trifle the great blessings that God has given to us. And so we give God our thanks Because everything we have, we've received from him. (laughs) And whatever you do or don't have, church, you have God. And you have his people. If you are experiencing financial strain, we can be rich toward one another. Even if we don't have much, we can enjoy the intangible blessing of friends and brothers and sister. If you can't buy a house, you get to live in the very household of God. If you are longing for a spouse... (laughs) You are the very bride of Christ. God has given us weighty, wonderful blessings. And will we do what we can to speak of them as they are and to encourage one another in sharing our gratitude for each other and having a culture of thanksgiving and of gratitude to help our hearts push back against the complaining, to push back against the trifling with the good things of God that he's given to us. So give thanks. And finally, the fruit of the Spirit should be bearing itself out in us as we, verse 21, submit to one another. And this comes from a term in the Greek which means to order under, to place yourself under 
uh, someone else kind of in a sense of rank or hierarchy. But here's the idea here. Paul says that we ought to be a people who are marked by this mutual submission, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And quickly, here's what this means. It means that we should come into church and come into our lives together and see ourselves as the servant of all those that Jesus has placed around us. Because he didn't see himself as above giving his own life for us. We remember Mark 10, 45 and his words there. Jesus said of himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that is our Savior, if that is our Lord, if that is his example, we should be a people who do not consider ourselves as above serving any, but take it as an encouragement to us to clothe ourselves in that same kind of humility, to strive to place the needs and interests of others above our own, and to serve one another as an expression of our service to Christ, and have a glad response to the reality that the one to whom all services do came not to be served, but to serve us by giving his life for us. He gave his life for our good. Would we give our lives for the good of each other and step back and see how wonderful and how blessed that it is? So church, let's put on these new clothes. Let's wear them everywhere we go and especially as we come together and sing and give thanks and serve one another, even when it's self-sacrificial and self-denying because and for the sake of and through the power of Christ. And as we're about to sing, would this be our prayer? Would this be the way we head into this new year? With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before his throne. With every breath, with every moment, with every hour, would we strive to put on the new clothes for the glory of our Savior and for the joy of our church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would this be the song we sing today and tomorrow and throughout this year? With every breath, we would long to follow you, to buy back and to redeem and to make the best use of our time. Best use of our time together. Best use of our time here with our neighbors in Santa Ana. Best use of what you've given to us to give back to you for the sake of your glory. Lord Jesus, give us grace for the ways in which we miss it and help us to more and more live in the goodness of all that you died and rose again to bring us into. Be glorified in us, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.